0: good morning church good morning people uh, all over the country and wherever else you might be uh, it's good to it's good to be with you for our third session on the theme why is following Jesus so hard let me get my stuff together here and um, we shall start. I had the privilege this week of uh, doing an interview about this new book. Uh, if you are watching, here it is. Cameras, there we go. Um, Introducing Christian Ethics. Uh, the book is um, now available for pre order and it's starting to move up the charts on Amazon, which is always kind of fun. Um, so, um, yeah. Thank you, Pastor. So, the book officially releases on February 28th, which is coming very soon. Thanks to all of you for being here today, and thanks for all who are um, listening in at home. So, let's uh, start with our review. Let's see if our first slide is up. Um, I have been saying certain things uh, and wanting to drive them home, so I'm going to review them again. Um, The fundamental claim of this series and and of, I would say, of of all of my work, uh, it's not obviously original to me, is that being a Christian is about following Jesus. It's not just about believing, it's not just about having a certain set of feelings or having a church membership, but it's about a life of discipleship. Um, Following Jesus, Involves going where he leads, um, attempting to obey what he teaches, and to live in the way that he modeled. Um, But following Jesus is hard. It's hard um, for a number of reasons, including um, the fact that we still have all kinds of contrary impulses within our hearts. We are still sinners. Um, We are constantly bombarded with influences that lead us astray. and, uh, and so, as, Luther, as Martin Luther said, we are always simultaneously forgiven and motivated to follow Jesus, but also still sinners with, with uh, impulses that take us in the wrong direction. So, this helps to lead to my understanding of the church, and I think a very Baptist understanding of the church, as a covenanted community of people who are attempting to follow Jesus together. We don't do this on our own. Um, we need each other and covenanted means we have made a covenant not just to accept the shed blood of christ uh, for our sins the new covenant in his blood but also a covenant to support each other in the path of discipleship um, and and so invisible in a, in a local congregation um, and more broadly you might say the church as a whole invisible but very real bonds connect us to each other as, as we together promise to support each other in the path of discipleship. That we know that we can't do this on our own, we know that we need each other. Community is so important. So uh, next slide. Um, we've been using uh, this four-box diagram, which I imagine will show up in just a little bit, but. Um, But in the first week where I I unpacked um, the diagram about how how we move our way towards discipleship, I talked about um, moral reasoning. Um, And that is uh, what's supposed to happen is that we draw as Christians on all of the resources that the Christian faith offers us. We draw on the, uh, the teachings of Jesus. We draw on the rules and principles and practices that are reinforced by Scripture. Uh, we, we draw on the character that, that uh, has been reshaped by the grace of God. Um, and together in community, we are heading towards a path of following Jesus as faithfully as we can. And our minds are are rightly ordered to think clearly about all of these resources to enable us to make the right decisions in specific situations. Um, But a lot of things can go wrong, including um, our thinking being led astray by rationalization, by self-deception, by faulty thinking, that uh, you might say where we don't end up really thinking along with the mind of Christ, we're thinking in some other ways. And I talked about um, some materials in Paul that emphasize the the way our minds are supposed to be working and how they can be redirected properly. The first was a passage from Romans 12, um, where Paul talks about the renewing of our minds and we learn to be non with the world as, we are, as our thinking is transformed through Christ. And then the passage from Philippians 1, 9-11, that has that striking teaching that our thinking is transformed as our love deepens. The love of Christ in our hearts and um, our, own, our own love. And I think this is actually a very profound thing that Paul says here, we could camp out for a long time, that if you want to think clearly, love deeply. If you want to think clearly, love deeply. There are a lot of people who don't love very deeply, and so they think they're thinking clearly, but there's a level that is missed, and sometimes badly missed, okay? So if you want to think clearly, love deeply, and let the love of God transform the way you think. So... That's, I think, where we were on the the, um, discussion of how we think. Last week, we talked some about how we see, and I use that quote that I've always found so striking, that 90% of what we see comes from behind our eyes. So the issue of uh, moral perception, moral vision, and how this is supposed to work um, for Christians is that, is that we are always training our vision. Um, we're always um, committed to seeing as truthfully and clearly and accurately as possible. Um, always open to new learning, always trying to learn to see the world the way that Jesus did. Um, um, always aware that our uh, moral perceptions can be led astray. And I talked about different ways that, that they can that we can see badly. Uh, We can have moral blind spots that we may have picked up from from our families or from our culture or just our own uh, um, inappropriate ways of looking at the world. Or maybe uh, somebody uh, gives us an opportunity to learn something new, but we're closed to it because we already know everything. We can't learn anything. Nobody can teach us anything. Um, And so we just kind of get stuck in unhealthy or ungodly or unchrist-like ways of seeing the world and we are unable to get out of that um, and and so a big part of the Christian moral life is always being aware Jesus said be careful how you see and um, and being aware of um, correcting our faulty moral vision and always being open to correction. Okay, so that's where we are so far. So, um, today I'm introducing my favorite of these boxes. If you have the handout, uh, it's the lower left box. I'm not sure if it's on the slide, Um, is it there? Yes, the lower left box called embodied context. Um, Let me read you uh, something that uh, I write about this in the chapter. Let's start by taking a hammer to the fantasy that human beings are or can be piloted strictly by reason. We are not disembodied minds. Instead, we are embodied spirits. The human being is an embodied spirit. Um, That's one way to describe that complex thing that we are, embodied spirit. I've also heard it described as inspirited bodies, but we are body and spirit. There's a lot going on. But our reasoning capacity is tied to organic matter, to physicality and nature, not just to our brain, but to our um, entire human body. Um, And then I write, moreover, human bodies exist in specific places in in relationship to specific persons living in a certain manner. These bodies, over time, become sites of memories which exist not only in our brains, but in our entire selves. And then our embodied selves are also associated with practices that we do with our bodies. And so I write, these could range to loading trucks each week with food for the poor, or to the eating practice, the tragic eating practice of bulimia, or to rummaging through dumpsters to find something to eat, or swimming at the country club, or cradling a child, or shouting out our lungs at a football game, or going hunting with grandpa. So, the slide here would be... Um, let's go to the next slide. Yeah, back, yeah, go back. Yeah. so. My claim is that human beings are embodied spirits who live in specific places and times, who are embedded in specific relationships, and whose bodies become sites of memory over time. Um, I'm actually struck right now by looking at Ashley Hold, little David Wilder. Just look over there for just a second. If you're on, at home, you're not going to be able to see this, but picture a baby being held very lovingly by a mother. OK. Um, what I'm claiming is that um, both this child and this mother are being profoundly morally shaped by what they are doing together bodily right now. And I'm about to cry just thinking about it. Um, Um, And so because we live in bodies and over time what we do with our bodies creates memories and loyalties and um, I don't know it just gets inscribed on our brains. All of that goes into how we think and act and live. All of it must be subject to reflection. But, um, but it is part of how and who we become morally. Um, we are, in a sense, what our bodies have experienced. Anybody who has held a child has been changed by holding a child. Um, anybody who has held a child and then lost that child has been profoundly changed. Um, Anybody who has ever been physically assaulted has been changed by that experience. Uh, Anybody who has ever been in a serious uh, accident or injury has been affected by that bodily experience. Anybody who has ever loved physically. Anybody who has ever sat by the bedside when somebody was dying and watched the dying process. Um, We are the accumulation of what our bodies have experienced. Um, That's not all that we are, but it's a big part of what we are. Um, I have a scar on my right leg that I could show you right now, but that would be gross. But it's under these blue jeans here on my right leg, right in the middle. That is the first um, traumatic bodily memory that I have. I was seven years old, I was on the playground at school, we were playing dodgeball, and somebody had thrown an alcohol bottle in the grass, broke it, and left it there. And so we were playing dodgeball that day. The grass was too high because they didn't take very good care of that school. The bottle was in the grass. I slid and it cut up my leg. And I, I still remember everything about that day. The scar that is inscribed on my leg is inscribed in my mind and heart too. And it has created certain kinds of formative influences for me, just among other things. Um, I think about how, how important it is that every child have a place to play that is safe. That every school be properly taken care of. That people um, that people not litter. In other words, these are not just ideas of mine, those ideas are inscribed in my body because of the experience that I had. So this, the idea that we are embodied spirits who live in specific contexts, who have specific relationships that have marked us, whose bodies become sites of memory over time, I think has a profound implication, Has many profound implications, as we think about um, how we function as followers of Jesus. Um, let's go to the next slide. Yeah, we are what our bodies have experienced, is one thing I'm saying here. Okay, next slide. Um, to go a little bit deeper, we are shaped by our most familiar practices. Uh, by the th- Practices are the things that we habitually do. Um, Again, and a lot of those practices, uh, at least they begin in our childhood. What our parents did with us on a regular basis, um, where we went, uh, what we did for fun, um, what mealtime was like, uh, what we did on Sunday morning or didn't do on Sunday morning. Our our, uh, most habitual practices, we are shaped by these. We are affected by our embodied memories Um, We are shaped by our most important relationships, even relationships that are part of our past, not part of our present. Um, This then creates loyalties, next slide, Um, loyalties to key individuals and communities in our lives. Um, And I'm gonna focus in on this in just a little bit more in a second. We are shaped by those that we have trusted the most deeply. I would also say we're we're marked perhaps especially by those that we have trusted and it turned out that it was wrong for us to have trusted them. But we're also positively shaped or at least definitely formatively shaped by those that we have trusted and have been essential mentors or role models or actors in our lives. Um, So we are shaped by those. Um, There's a a saying from Africa, I am because we are. I am because of the embeddedness in the relationships that have most profoundly shaped me. Um, next slide, to finish out this box, then I'm going to give you some examples. Um, one of the things that this lower left box uh, does is to emphasize that we are also driven by our passions, um, by our emotions. Um, by the most deeply felt feelings that we have and not just by our thoughts, right? We are, we are emotional creatures, not just rational ones. And that we are in, affected by our self-interest. Um, and that self-interest is itself embodied. So, um, what we would hope is that we would be driven by the teachings of the Bible or by the example of Jesus or by the teachings of our pastors or whatever, but maybe we find that what is really driving us is self-interest. It's our financial self-interest. It's our professional self-interest. It's our, maybe what we understand our political interest to be. So if you you put it all together, there are um, a lot of factors uh, that that shape who we are and how we think and how we live that may have nothing to do with Jesus or actually may be contrary to what Jesus would have us do. But these factors are so real that we must account for them. I wanna give you some examples um, from my life. Next slide. Um, My father, who died last, who died in December of 2020, worked for um, the, U- the United States government. Uh, he worked in policy analysis. And he, he uh, was trained by MIT and worked for DuPont, but in the heart of his career that I remember as I was growing up, he did policy analysis. He provided documents, reports and stuff for the Congress people to make laws, especially in the area of environment and energy policy. We lived eight miles or so from Washington, D.C. My dad loved his work for the government, and he helped to contribute to the first stage of environmental laws, like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, um, and uh, all of that. So, and I knew all kinds of people around me whose parents also worked for the government in every branch. CIA, State Department, Defense Department, Health and Human Services, Education Department. Jeannie's, uh, my wife's father worked for the Department of Education for how many years, Mom? 40 at least, or something. He, he loved his work. He retired at the age of something like 77 or something because he just, he loved it so much. Okay, so one of the things this has meant, both on my wife's side of the family and my side of the family and, and our upbringing, we have respect for the United States government. We have respect for people who serve in the civil service. Nobody's ever going to be able to make me not feel that, because that is how I was raised. But probably, I certainly cannot assume that everybody who's hearing these words has that same kind of uh, default respect for government people. Um, in fact, there's a default disrespect for government people on the part of many people in this country. You have, like, a, a strong libertarian perspective, the government is the enemy, we kind of stay away from the government, you know, all they want to do is take our money and take our freedom, you know, all of that. But I own, I own from myself that how I was raised affects my um, default respect for the government, and so if people just treat all government officials as tyrants or incompetents, I get angry because I was not raised that way, I was raised different. Okay? This might mean though, if a situation should emerge where a government regime, a president, a governor, or civil service people were being unjust, it would be maybe slightly harder for me to acknowledge that because I was raised to have respect for the government. Right? Now, say, say uh, you were raised by somebody who was a, who was a police officer. Right? or who was in the military. you probably, your default starting point is to, is to be respectful towards those institutions because that's how you were raised. Um, it would be, it would not just be like, contrary to how you were raised, to, to start off disrespectful. It would feel disrespectful to your own parents. And nobody wants to start off being disrespectful to their parents if they have a decent relationship with their parents. Let me give you a second example. Um, my career was definitively shaped by three men who mentored me. Um, one was named Glenn Stassen. He taught Christian ethics at Southern Baptist Seminary, and he uh, essentially got me into the discipline that has been so meaningful and satisfying to me. Glenn Stassen, um, lived until 2014. I wrote a book with him, and my life has been shaped by him. Another was a man named Ron Sider. Ron Sider wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, a famous book. I worked with him, he hired me in 1990 while I was doing my PhD work. Ron Sider is one of the most admirable people that I know, uh, a peace-loving Mennonite evangelical from Canada. Um, A third person who was a fundamental mentor for me was a man named Larry Rasmussen. He was a Lutheran ethicist and he worked on nuclear peacemaking stuff, as did Glenn Stassen and Ron Sider. And he's also a serious, probably the leading theologian to deal with issues of the environment. Okay, these three mentors are so pivotal to me that my loyalty to them runs very deep. This is great and I am grateful for their mentorship, but this might make it harder for me to disentangle my loyalty to them from my loyalty to Jesus. Like, what if they were wrong? It's gonna be hard about something. It's gonna be hard for me to accept that because of how loyal I am to them as individuals. Does that make sense, right? Now think about that for people in your own life, mentors, key people who shaped you, your parents, a coach, a teacher. The fact that they had an impact on you and that you feel grateful for them that's one of the good things in life, but if they, are, if they were directing you in the wrong direction, then that could actually be a force for bad in your life. It depends on who they were and what they were really about, and it, and it becomes harder to disentangle. In other words, I'm gonna, I'm gonna preach on this next week. Sometimes these mentors can become almost idols in our lives that make it difficult for us to follow the one true God because we're so loyal to these mentors, right? Now, I happen to still have a great deal of respect for all three of those mentors, and um, I'll fight you if you want to criticize them, but I'm aware of that in myself. And um, uh, just because they were your mentor doesn't mean that they were right. That's the point, right? Um, Another example that is very close to home. Is it on the slide? Did you know that on March 19th, My wife, Jeannie, and I will celebrate the 40th anniversary of our first date. Isn't it cute that I know that? And I don't know that just because I'm scared of missing that day. I actually know that day. On March 19th, 1982, we had our first date. And so the fact that Jeannie and I have managed to build a marriage that's 37 years in duration, shapes how I think about marriage, obviously, how I teach about the marriage covenant. Um, and imagine though, if I were an ethicist, say, whose marriage had broken up after eight years, right? Or, or I was fundamentally um, unhappy in my marriage or whatever. In fact, some people think that my writing about marriage is too conservative. And the reason it's too conservative is I still say things like people should think about marriage as a lifetime commitment. Oh, oh, you know, that's old-fashioned, don't you know? In other words, I know that my embodied experience shapes the way that I teach and preach about marriage and family. Um, uh, And I'm, I know that I'm affected by my, by my marital experience. I also know that if somebody were to come at me, and when somebody does come at me about my thinking about those issues, my personal experience is entangled with my, with my ethical reflection. It's inevitable that it would be. Um, I think I have, yeah, a couple more examples. Um, talk about, um, next slide, um, oh, did, did something get lost, okay. Uh, go back and we'll just, I'll give you a couple other examples. Um, I want to say that our social class position always affects how we think about financial related issues. Um, I was raised in, a, my story, we began kind of in the lower middle class. My dad didn't make much, we, there were four of us kids, mom was out of the job market for a while. We lived pretty close to the bone for a little while, but as, as dad's career took off, we were able to move to a nicer neighborhood, were able to go to a nicer school. We were raised in the middle class. Um, There's no question that how we are raised economically affects how we think about financial issues. If you're raised in a country club life, you're affected by the country club life that you're raised in. If you're raised uh, going into dumpsters to get food, you're going to be affected by that. If you're raised in between, you're going to be affected by that. Nobody's thinking about economics is unaffected by their social class experience. Um, but Jesus has specific things to say about money that may sit uneasily with whatever our, uh, whatever our economic experience was. So we always need to be aware that when we're thinking about, like, when Jesus says it is harder for a rich person to go through the eye of a needle, or whatever, harder for a rich person to have salvation than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. For some people, that makes perfect sense. For other people, that's extremely uncomfortable. Right? It kind of depends on where you are in the economic spectrum. So think about like, your formative experiences. I'll ask students things like, can you ever remember a time where you were hungry because your family didn't have enough food? If you ever had that experience, it shapes you. Um, so so that's, that's a thing to consider very, very much. Another one, um, is the era in which we lived. Uh, I, was, I was born in 1962. Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened when I was one. My parents were in, well, I was born in Germany, I mean, right there in the middle of the Cold War. Dad says he was not a spy. I'm not sure I believed him, right? But anyway, we were then raised in Northern Virginia. My parents used to talk about how frightening the Cuban Missile Crisis was. If those missiles had been unleashed, they would have hit the DC area and I would have been incinerated as a baby. But in terms of my own like memorable experience, um, I can't, I, in college, it was during the last stage of the Cold War, Ronald Reagan was president. There was a lot of fear of, of US-Soviet tension. And I remember being afraid. I gave a speech my senior year in college in which I said to my classmates, I'm not sure that we are going to have the chance to live out our days. Because I was so scared of nuclear weapons. Now that's not everybody's experience, but if you were raised during the time of drills, and you had to get under deaths because of the fear of nuclear weapons, um, you were marked by that. Now, our kids are being raised, are being, uh, living in the experience of having to do drills related to guns in school, shooters, active shooter drills, right? They are being affected by that. Embodied experience of huddling under a desk or behind a door um, shapes how we experience reality. So um, those who were raised during the Vietnam era or who came of age during the Vietnam era were very much affected by the Vietnam experience. Um, And and up and down the ladder, that goes. Um, One other example I wanna give. I am now old enough to have buried both of my parents and one of my siblings. And anybody who has gone through those experiences is marked by them. Uh, and what I think about how healthcare should be delivered, and what I think about how the dead or the dying should be treated, and what the rules and principles are at that time of life, um, is is indelibly marked by my embodied experience. Like when my father was dying, we did it was during COVID. We did hospice in at home, and myself and my two sisters were the primary ones in charge of of seeing my dad through the dying process to death. It was so much more personal than, than just being in a hospital. It was very different. We were the ones giving him the, the morphine at night. We were the ones going through that process with him, watching him decline and die. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, on the other hand, um, I learned an awful lot by that experience and it was a whole lot better than having dad be behind glass and us not be able to see him when he was dying. So friends, what I'm saying is, own all of those experiences, name them, know that they have shaped you, know that they affect the way way that you think, Um, and know that everybody's experience is different. I would say that it's the collectivity of these experiences that shapes, you might say, the story that we are living in as we understand it. The story that our life has taught us is, is, is uh, the, co- the collectivization or the collective of all of these experiences. It's like if our life were to flash before our eyes and our most important embodied experiences were to be collected, what would they be? What would they be for you? they'd be different for every single person in this room, and every single person who was watching. Right? Um, I'm going through some stuff now, lacerating experience in my family, that will always shape how I think about reality the rest of the way. Sometime I might tell you some of you all about it, but, but it's incredible, and it's hard, and it's marking me. So, let's go to the next slide. So what I try to tell my students is, be fully aware of the most formative life experiences, but also be aware of how they might misdirect you in your fundamental commitment of following Jesus. Okay, so some examples that I put on here. Um, Our trusted mentors and family might have had values that were contrary to Jesus. By the way, at Macon these days, where I'm teaching the undergraduates at Mercer, we had something remarkable happen in class this week. Um, I was teaching about Ida B. Wells-Barnett, the anti-lynching journalist of the late 19th and early 20th century. Everybody should read about Ida B. Wells-Barnett. And, um, and one of my students uh, said in class that her great-grandmother had, uh, this was a white student, her great-grandmother had been a personal witness to several lynchings in her childhood and young adulthood. And that she had told these stories to her grandmother, who told them to her mother, who told them to her. Um, Now, I don't know what interpretation was put on those stories. What I do know is that family is now indelibly marked by that experience, and it has now been passed forward four generations. Hopefully the lesson was racism is evil, lynching was evil, and I am here to tell you about how evil it was. Hopefully that's what the story was. Um, she didn't go into it, maybe we'll hear more later. but just because a member of our family or somebody who is a mentor or somebody we valued had certain experiences or values it doesn't mean that they align with the values of jesus indeed that is how social evil is transmitted Um, where clusters of wrong beliefs and wrong practices get passed on across cultures and from one generation to the next Because they're just passed forward in families and in cultures. That's how, you know, uh, apartheid gets transmitted in South Africa. It's how, you know, Jim Crow segregation gets transmitted here. It's how sexism gets transmitted. It's how homophobia gets transmitted. Um, It's how greed gets transmitted, right? Um, There is this, there is a collective transmission of values, partly because people trust what their elders tell them. But what if what their elders tell them is wrong? Um, Second point, our bodily memories that we have, they might traumatize us, they might teach the wrong lessons, they might need to be reconsidered in in new and different kinds of ways. Um, Third, our familiar practices might actually be contrary to Christ's will. Um, you know, maybe, uh, (laughs) um, yeah, maybe membership in a fraternity or a sorority, I'll sometimes say to my students, maybe that fraternity or sorority has some practices that really don't fit with Christ. How about hazing? Right? Right. Um, And just because all the brothers have always done hazing on the new members, does that mean that it's right? No, it's a tradition. It's a tradition that needs to be challenged. Um, Bullying, or whatever it might be, right? So, whatever, our familiar practices might be contrary to Christ's will. Maybe our family had had a lot of money and wasted it on, on stuff that was really not worth spending. Um, and maybe, maybe uh, the way of Jesus would challenge that, but, but we are so socialized into uh, excessive spending that we're not able to really listen to what Jesus says about money. Or maybe our personal passions and, and um, self-interest might lead us astray. Or maybe in the end, we end up making an idol out of merely earthly people, ideas, values, loyalties, or experiences so um, <laughs> the next slide what what can we do to be saved uh, yeah go ahead and go to the next one um, one of the reasons we need each other in community is so that we can discern together have you ever been in a situation like where you're talking to a group of uh, trusted Christian friends about something and you say well, well what I think is and they say what Where'd you get that, right? We need each other because we can correct for our blind spots and erroneous, you know, problematic practices, ideas, or loyalties or passions as we listen to each other. Um, When you realize, but it has to be done lovingly, it has to be done charitably, but when you realize oh I think I'm not thinking clearly about that because I don't find support for that in my community. My, my community is is asking me to reconsider that particular value. Like let's say uh, maybe uh, a woman has been mistreated by her father, uh, her brother, and maybe her f- most formative early romantic interest in a, say, heterosexual context, and she concludes all men are awful. Men are just awful, they're beasts, right? A natural conclusion perhaps for her to draw, but does that mean that's actually true in the world that all men are beasts? No, it just means that's been her experience and maybe the healing power of community can be, you know, um, rethink that, that can be reconsidered. Um, uh, maybe you can meet other people in the community who can who can show you a better way and a better way of thinking, right? Um, Community helps us to see where our experiences are not universal, where the the judgments we have drawn from our experiences might need to be challenged and reconsidered. Um, A community like this one, that has a diversity of experience and a diversity of vision is a rich community and can help us to do better than our own blind spots. Communities that are homogeneous where everybody basically comes from the same background have more blind spots, I think. Because those blind spots are reinforced by, oh yeah, everybody, everybody in this church goes to the same country club. Or everybody had the same kind of uh, racial background and experience. Well, if you have diversity of experience and life in your community, you're less likely to have the same blind spots. You're more likely to be able to correct for the blind spots that some of us have, right? Um, We need to attend carefully to our life experiences. Learn from your life. Study it closely. Try to make sense out of it. But never assume that your life experience or my life experience is normative or teaches the right lessons. Test everything according to Jesus. And there's a passage that I wanted us to end with today um, that I think gets us there. So let's see if the next slide has that passage on there. Okay, yeah, next slide. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, there's a lot going on here, but I'll I'll emphasize what's most important. To respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. Next slide. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, etc. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good abstain from every form of evil what i wanted to to do in showing this whole passage let's go back to the last slide what what's happening here is that paul is saying here is how we live here is the way of jesus it includes things like non-retaliation offering good Trying to live joyfully a prayerful life, a grateful life, a life in which um, the teaching of the leadership is taken seriously, in which evil is abstained from. But the the thing I wanted you to to cling to here is test everything, hold fast to what is good. And that's what I would say finally about about this cluster of issues that we've been talking about. No matter who it is, your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, your aunt, your uncle, your favorite teacher, your favorite pastor, your favorite person on TV, your favorite author, or your most memorable experiences, most positive, most negative, the most familiar things that you always did every day, all of it must be tested. Nothing can be taken as if it is unequivocally clearly good until it has been tested according to the way of Jesus. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So one reason following Jesus is so hard is because we bring all of this stuff into everything that we think and do and how we live and some of all of that stuff, mom and dad and brothers and sisters and life experiences and divorces and marriages and traumas and births and deaths and so on, it shapes us, but it may misshape us if we interpret it wrongly or if, we, if it goes in the wrong direction in terms of how we process it or if it's just, you know, bad, bad influences. Um, but so that's why following Jesus is hard. But what, but what can happen in, in the Christian life, what's supposed to happen, is that we learn to process everything according to Christ, test everything, hold fast to what is good. So that's where I'll stop today. And I think we should have a few minutes for questions, Pastor. So um, happy to entertain not just questions, but if you have reflections on formative experiences of your own or, or some... Place where this connects with you, maybe a mentor who didn't turn out to be trustworthy, whatever you'd like to do to, to engage, uh, we have a few minutes.